Hey, welcome to this episode of California Hans Radio. I'm Charlotte. I'm your host. And as you can tell, I have the air conditioning on once again behind me because we are looking at another 109-degree day here in Sacramento. We are the California Hans Paranormal Investigation Team, www.californiahaunts.org, based out of Sacramento. But we also investigate up and down the state of California, Oregon, Washington, and some of Hawaii. It's great to be here today. How is everybody? Well, I hope you're feeling great because I'm feeling great. I have a great guest today. Um, this is one of our special guests. This is one of our guests that um, when we discuss the t-shirt, let me show you the t-shirt, see the t-shirt? Let me get this in the right spot. There's the t-shirt. Okay. Anybody that suggests a guest that, that, that I have on that airs will get a free t-shirt. See the California Hunts t-shirt? So this shirt will be going out, well, something like this shirt, I got two, two of these, will be going out to Tim and Pamela Schmidt for suggesting this great guest, Andrew Perron. I think, I hope, I hope, I'm, ah, I, hope I didn't botch the name. Uh, you've probably heard the name before. She's got a very special history that, you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm one of these people that even though I do ghost hunting, I don't follow the real major cases because I'm pretty much handling the stuff, you know, locally for my clients. And when she pointed, when, when I read who she was and she, and she told me who she was, I was absolutely intrigued. And I think you will be too. So without further ado, let me put this shirt down here. Good place for it. That great? That's what floors are for. And let me bring Andrea on. Hello. Hi, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Schmitz. Thank you for inviting me onto your broadcast. Uh, you have a wonderful reputation in the field. I always do my homework on, you know, whoever I'm, I'm meeting for the first time. And uh, you're very well known far and wide. Uh, you're a West Coaster, absolutely, without question. Um, but you are very respected in the field. And uh, I always appreciate that. So uh, it's lovely to join you. Thank you. That's good to know. I didn't know that. <laughs> so involved with doing stuff out here. I just, you know, I'm just focused out here on, on keeping my team going, you know? Yep. Tell us a little bit about yourself because I, like I said, you know, I don't follow, I, I mean, I follow stuff on TV, but I don't follow everything. So when you told me who you were, um, I was absolutely floored. Well, <clears throat> um, a lot of people treat me like I'm some kind of celebrity in this mm -hmm. field. I will never be a celebrity. I don't have that. It's not hardwired into my DNA. Um, I'm just Annie. Uh, I happened to have grown up in 
one of the world's most haunted houses and 30 years after uh, my family left the farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island, um, I decided that the time had come that people were ready for the story. And so I left my wonderful job that I loved and I left my wonderful theater company that I loved in Rhode Island and I moved to Georgia to be with my mother and my sisters uh, in uh, March of 2008. And I had already begun what was going to be one book that evolved into three, uh, the trilogy that I wrote of the whole true story of the 10 years that we lived at the farmhouse. And the trilogy is called House of Darkness, House of Light, volumes one, two, and three. Um, anybody that is interested in the story can get all three of them from Amazon, Amazon UK, Amazon CA, Amazon Australia, Amazon. Um, it's a, it's a, a big voluminous story. It's almost 1500 pages uh, for the three books together. So it's, it's an investment of time and energy into reading it. But when you do read it, it will make um, the film version of our story, which is The Conjuring, uh, seem like it completely, utterly missed the mark. <laughs> and in some ways it did. Uh, the Conjuring was a good film. Um, you know, there's no taking that away from it for what it was. And in the grand arc, the scheme of things, it leaves people with very distinct impressions. Um, one of them being that good conquers evil, that love conquers fear, and that the Perrin family uh, all endured an extreme haunting that we all survived. And so, you know, those are the overarching um, uh, impressions, but there isn't a single scene from any of my books in it. It's, uh, the film was really based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, and they visited our house a grand total of six times. Um, and uh, the last time they came was to check and see if my mother was still alive. Hmm. Because the fifth time that they were there um, they uh, conducted a seance that went so terribly and tragically wrong that it almost cost my mother her life. And things got very ugly and my father threw them and their crew out of the house and he didn't want anything to do with them in the first place uh, because he didn't trust that they had our best interest at heart um, and that he thought that they... Um, were into a lot of hocus pocus and that they were going to exploit our family and you know everybody in the family has a different take on the warrens but uh i think that they did the best they could mm -hmm. um mrs warren admitted that they were in over their heads the minute they crossed the threshold of that farm and ed warren is on the record describing the investigation that they conducted at our home as, and these are his words, the most intense, compelling, disturbing, and significant of all of the investigations that they ever conducted over more than 40 years 
as paranormal investigators. So that's why The Conjuring was the first movie in the series of films um, that is now uh, called The Conjuring Universe. Um, all the stories based on their case files, but ours was first because they felt like ours was the one that uh, shattered the template. Um, that they did not they did not know what to make of what was happening in our home. Well, neither did we. Um, they came, we'd already lived there for a couple of years uh, before they showed up. Uh, the film uh, leaves people with many misconceptions. Uh, it is not an accurate portrayal of our family nor of the circumstances around the story and the telling of the story. And in fact, uh, by cherry pick picking a little of our story and relying predominantly on Mrs. Warren's case files, the uh, screenwriters admitted that it was so much and it was so overwhelming that they didn't know what to do with it. So they kind of conjured up their own third story. Um, and that's where the, the film comes from, from their own imaginations. Like what, what would they do if they were in the situation or these circumstances. Uh, you know, we were just little kids. I was 12 years old um, as the eldest member of the family uh, of the children when we moved to the farm. And my baby sister, God rest her soul, um, was five. Um, she passed away in 2017 very suddenly and tra tragically. Um, but I'm always grateful that she lived long enough to see her story come to fruition, to see her words come into print, to be able to tell her version of events before she passed away. And she's still with it, with us. She's with us all the time. Mm -hmm. More so with my mother than anybody else in the family. Uh, but she makes her presence known around us frequently. And um, she uh, is... Um, she makes her announcement. She always wore what we called her old, old lady perfume, uh, kind of a gardenia scent, very heavy gardenia scent. And so when April's about to make uh, an announcement of, of herself, we, we actually catch the aroma of the fragrance of it first. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, I guess, her version of fair warning. Mm -hmm. um, but she's uh, she's doing okay on the other side. It was a bit of an adjustment, but she's doing okay. Um, had I not grown up in the environment that I did, uh, my life wouldn't look anything like it does. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And I can't say that I would be able to recognize or know when my sister was coming to call. You know, it's because I'm so tapped in and tuned on you know, tuned in and turned on to spirit activity that um, I could pick up on it like immediately on the energy, the shift, the, the, you know, the, the electricity in the air, the presence of her, the light around her. Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. And I don't blame the Warrens. I don't blame the Warrens for anything because i really do believe in my heart that they were trying to help us they just didn't know how um it was uh, 
the house was just riddled with activity, absolutely riddled with activity. And I think that we brought a lot of that on, even though it had a reputation as being a haunted house prior to us moving into it, you know, buying the house in 1970. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know that. You know, my mother wanted it because it was one of the original colonial homes that was left in this country. Uh, the house was, as it stands now, was completed in 1736, for 40 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, it has quite an extraordinary history and it was even used as part of the Underground Railroad uh, during the Civil War um, because the family that lived there were abolitionists. Uh, they were Quakers, uh, the Arnold family, very well established family in Rhode Island had followed Roger Williams uh, down from the Massachusetts Bay Colony when he was expelled as uh, a rabble rouser uh, because he believed in the separation of church and state and he believed in uh, freedom to worship as you please. And so those were the tenets upon which he founded the colony of Rhode Island. And the Richardson family followed him from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and they are actually the ones that built the farm. Uh, the farmland was deeded to the Richardsons originally, and, and then through marriage, it became the Arnold estate. Hmm. And so eight generations of an extended family lived and died in that farmhouse on that property uh, before we ever arrived. We were the first outsiders. We have no um, genealogical or familial connection to uh, those families. And yet we had a very strong sense that we belonged there, that we were supposed to be there. I particularly felt like um, I had lived there before. I knew the town the first time I was just a little kid. I was 11 years old. I hadn't even had my birthday yet. Um, when we first met as a family to look at the farm and I knew all the landmarks that had been there as late as the um, the early 19th century. Uh, I didn't recognize some of the newer buildings, but I knew all the old ones. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew the, where the theater was, and I knew about the uh, the lake and the and the waterfall, and you know the big old Spencer house. And you know, I mean, the place seemed so incredibly familiar to me that I actually asked my father if there was any chance that we had ever been there before because it seemed so incredibly familiar. And he said, no, that we had not. Uh, when we traveled together as a family, we had a boat down on uh, Narragansett Bay. And mm -hmm. so when we traveled together, usually it was to go sailing, you know, to go boating uh, out on the bay. So uh, no, we had not been to that town, but I recognized it. I knew it well. And, uh, that farm is the only place that has ever felt like home to me, Charlotte. I mean, I've lived in a lot of places, in some beautiful homes. I, you know, I went to college in, in uh, Pennsylvania, out in Pittsburgh. I've lived in Georgia. I live in Florida now. Um, but the farm is home. The farm will always be my home. Every place else feels temporary to me. And that's fine, you know, because I... I get to go back, I get to have the experience of it. Uh, and the people who own it now have uh, truly embraced me and our story. 
inquiry and they've opened it for uh, investigations. Uh, uh, after many years of it being shut down like a steel trap, nobody was allowed. And mm -hmm. so uh, now others are being able to collect evidence and experience the, the swirling timelessness of what I've always described as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. Um, you know, the first photograph of the house uh, that was ever taken was in 1885 when photography had just been invented. And if, if you really look closely in that photograph, you can see that that house was already haunted. You can actually see the presence of spirits around family in, in the original photograph. It's quite amazing. Um, but, you know, I'm sure you have questions or your audience might have questions. You know, whatever you um, you want to ask me, there's nothing off the table. There's nothing that I won't answer honestly and spontaneously. Everyone who knows me knows that. Um, I don't care how people react. Um, I, if I did care, I wouldn't have been able to tell the story and open myself and my family up to the kind of scrutiny that you know, comes with telling such an extraordinary tale. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely happy to uh, answer anything that you want to know. When you talk about feeling so familiar with the uh, town and the house, you think you might have been there in a past life? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, when we moved there, I didn't necessarily espouse the notion of, of uh, reincarnation. Mm -hmm. But when I was 17 years old, I had an encounter uh, in our parlor on the hearthstone of the fireplace with a spirit who was the mirror image reflection of me as an old woman. And that's when I knew that my attachment to the house was ancient and profound and truly significant. Uh, and I remember the day that we were leaving and telling my mother what I saw of this woman's face. My mother saw the apparition. Everyone in my family saw the apparition, but I was the only one who saw her face because I was standing right next to her and she was staring at me. Um, and the eyes were the same. Every facial feature was identical just aged. Um, and she was dressed in clothing from probably 1830s to 1850s. She was wearing a dress that had leg of mutton sleeves, you know, the big puffy sleeves and mm -hmm. long, narrow, um, uh, like cuffs with pearls all the way downside. And, um, and she smiled at me and it was, I mean, it was, it was me only 150 years earlier. And wow. that was uh, part of my personal paradigm shift. That was when I came to the realization that I was attached to that house in an extremely unusual way. Um, and I knew then, my mother said the day we were moving out and I told her, she said, you know, Annie, I always knew we bought this house for you. <laughs> like, well, you should have maybe told me because that was a bit shocking. Um, 
And that was the only time I ever saw her. That one and only time. And it was on the eve of my 18th birthday. So I'd already lived there for six years. Uh, and I'd come home for the weekend for, uh, from college. Mm -hmm. And I had just gone out about six weeks earlier and I hated it. I was miserable. I had a roommate from hell, which I would have swapped any of the spirits for had I had the option. Um, she was just miserable. And uh, my best friend in the world, uh, Susie Fiore, was the senior, uh, a senior when I was a freshman. We lived on the same floor of the same uh, building and she saw what was going on and made it her personal mission. And as student body president, trust me when I tell you, she could get away with anything. <laughs> and so she made it her personal mission to torture that woman for her final year of, uh, of her uh, matriculation at Chatham College. Oh. And for that, I will always be grateful. Uh, and I only had to live with her for six weeks before I was able to choose another roommate because we couldn't work it out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I don't know, I, I don't know what about me spooked her. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I was, you know, never anything but nice. And, you know, I was always trying to be, you know, to accommodate her and, you know, stay out of her way. I mean, she was just a bitch from hell. I mean, there's just no other getting around it. And so finally I got away from her, but that never stopped Susie from torturing her. She tortured right. her for the entire year. It was fabulous. I, I will always be grateful. <clears throat> when you guys moved into the house, um, how did stuff start? I mean, did it start all at once or did it start gradually? Like a lot of stuff, you know, in our experience, investigating starts gradually and then, and then it starts building up. The more the people get freaked out, it starts building up more and more. Is that what happened? No. Um, as a family, we visited the house probably five or six times before we actually moved in. Um, and had gotten very friendly with the owner, um, Mr. Kenyon, um, lovely, lovely man who owned the house and sold it to my parents. Um, but I asked, when I was writing the books, I asked every member of the family if they had any recollection of anything strange or untoward or weird happening there um, prior to moving in. And no one did. Um, on the day we moved in as owners, everything changed. Uh, and it was January 11th, 1971. My parents had closed on the house in the beginning of December of 1970. But my mother refused to move over the holidays and Mr. Kenyon wasn't quite ready to move out anyway. So we stayed in our, our uh, little Cape Cod in Cumberland, Rhode Island through the holidays. And mom was sure to tell us, don't throw any boxes away from anything that you get from Santa because you're gonna need to pack your toys right back up and we're gonna move. So um, and I was very excited about that because from the first time that I was at the farm, I just, I didn't want to leave. I mm -hmm. just wanted to stay there. It felt so perfect and welcoming to me. Um, and I would say that that was pretty much true for everybody in the family. And it felt, you know, when we went back to Cumberland after that first 
day after leaving this, you know, spacious, pastoral, bucolic paradise out in the woods of northern Rhode Island, 200 acres with this enormous farmhouse and this enormous barn. Um, it just, it screamed, just stay, stay uh, to all of us. And then we all piled in the car and we went back to our Cape Cod in Cumberland and everything felt so small. It, it just felt like, like something had shifted, like nothing felt, it felt surreal. It just, it didn't even feel like home anymore. It just felt like that place that we're staying until we can get to the farm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, the day that we moved in, it was January 11th, 1971. And there was a swirling snow and wind and ice event going on in Southern New England. Uh, it was bitter cold, bitter cold. Uh, ice pellets just slapping against your skin felt like like being stung by a thousand bees. Um, and the wind was whipping and it was just miserable. But you know, when you're, you know, when you're made of good old Yankee stock and it's moving day, you don't postpone it, you just do it. So everybody showed up, the uncles and you know, the, the aunt and we loaded the truck um, and cleared out the house and drove up to Harrisville and when we got there, dad threw open the back of the um, moving van, the big van. It was a whole caravan of cars and, you know, kids and animals. And I mean, it was just nuts, nuts. It was bedlam. Um, so mom went into the kitchen with April, who was only five. And it was just too cold and she was too small to be able to really help uh, unload the truck. So dad uh, opened the van and he handed me a box marked kitchen. And I knew that mom was in the kitchen waiting for the kitchen boxes because they all went on last onto the truck so that she could set up the kitchen so that we could actually have dinner in our new house that night. So um, they moved in, the, the moving guys moved in the refrigerator around the side of the house. And I went in the front door into the parlor area holding a box. And I rounded the corner from the parlor into the dining room and Mr. Kenyon was standing there and he was um, at his table. He hadn't even moved his stuff out of the house yet. And so uh, he was packing up some of the last of his belongings out of the, there's a built-in China hutch in the dining room in the corner, a corner cupboard. And he was uh, unloading it and packing up his wife's china. Um, and she had passed away about 10 years before we bought the house. And so I greeted him and, you know, we knew each other well at that point. I greeted him. I chatted with him for a moment. And then I picked up the box to walk through the front foyer into the kitchen. And there was a man standing there. And the one thing that I noticed about him well, a couple things really, but mm -hmm. he appeared absolutely like flesh blood to me. Like, like there was nothing apparition like about him. Like if I touched him, I would feel his, you know, feel his skin. Mm -hmm. um, and as I walked past him, I said, good morning, sir. And he didn't respond to me. And I guess I thought, well, you know, I'm a kid, who am I to him? 
and that he was there for Mr. Kenyon. Uh, so I walked in the kitchen and I said, Mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And um, she said, well, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon, honey. Uh, his son's on the way. He's not here yet. So I guess I just figured it was a neighbor that had stopped by. The house is so huge and has so many different doors. He could have come in a different way, and my mother wouldn't have known the difference. Um, but the one thing that I did notice about him was that he was dressed oddly. And I remember distinctly thinking, oh, God, I wonder if everybody out here dresses like that. You know, um, and it turns out that he was dressed in clothes from, like, the 1850s. Um, but then I went out the kitchen door and back around to the truck. And right behind me, um, my sister Christine came in and she saw him as well. And he was just leaned up against the wall and he had his arms crossed and his head cocked a little to the side. He had kind of a quirky grin on his face and he had one of his two legs up against the wall. And he was in the same position when she saw him. And she walked past him and and said, you know, excuse me, sir, good morning. And again, and nothing. He was just fixated on watching Mr. Kenyon. And then she walked out the kitchen door and came back around after she asked my mother, you know, who's that guy? And my mom's like, there's no guy, you know? And she was busy. She didn't have time to go look. Right. So uh, we just dropped it, you know, because it was bedlam. It was chaos. It was moving day. And, uh, and so then my sister... Cindy walked in with a box and she walked into the kitchen and immediately said, mom, who's that guy with Mr. Kenyon? And then my sister, Nancy came in. My mother's like, you know, exasperated at this point. Like, I know I'll go check in a minute. You know, I don't know. And, um, and then Nancy came in behind Cindy and she leaned over and she said, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? I did, but he just disappeared. And that was our introduction to the paranormal, to living wow. in a, a, being a natural family, a normal family, living in a paranormal house and in a supernatural way. Uh, it was it. And it all happened within the first 10 minutes that we moved in. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <clears throat> I don't know you seeing him. That's crazy. So what Well, you know what's really interesting, though, yeah. Charlotte, is that later... He reappeared, and okay. I was in I was in the dining room. My sister, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, April was still with mom in the kitchen. My father was in there mm -hmm. and was having a conversation with Mr. Kenyon, and the four of us were standing there listening to the conversation because at that point, it was getting later in the day, and it was quite clear that Mr. Kenyon really didn't want to leave the house. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, his son hadn't shown up with um, a moving truck yet. I mean, like, uh, you know, he felt abandoned. He was sad. I mean, it had been his home for 60 years. Mm -hmm. And my father said, Earl, this house is huge. There's no problem if you want to just stay here and live with us. You can have your own space, your own room. You know, we'll rearrange. Don't worry. You just stay with us. Just stay with us. My whole family loves you. We'll, we'll make it work. And he was so touched. Bless his heart. Aww. 
and that apparition manifested right next to him. And my father didn't see him. Mr. Kenyon didn't see him, but all four of us did. And wow. that's when I knew this was not something that we should talk about. And I just looked at my sisters and they were looking at me like, do you see him too? Do you see him too? And we were all just like eyeing each other like, uh-huh, yeah, without saying anything. Um, and that's when we knew that there was something very strange about our new home that was very old. And um, later, a little later on, Mr. Kenyon asked my dad if he would walk outside with him, but he had something to tell him. Um, and so they went for a walk out in the swirling. Well, it wasn't snowing anymore, but it was still brutal outside. And I remember looking at them through the kitchen window and they appeared almost like in silhouette together on, on the knoll outside the kitchen overlooking the property. And Mr. Kenyon was talking to my father very seriously. And I found out much later that what he had said to him was, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. Wow. And it wasn't until months and months later, you know, and my father didn't know how to interpret that. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that he thought about it was, well, you know, I've got five little girls. They're all going to be sleeping upstairs. There's two very narrow, dark stairwells. And the one bathroom is down on the first floor. So, yeah, best to leave the lights on so that my kids don't go spilling down the stairs in the middle of the night. And that's how he thought about what had just been said to him. Um, but it wasn't until later when we started meeting people that lived in the area. And you know, I mean, the, the, the farm was so large, we couldn't even see our closest neighbor's house. Um, mm -hmm. But we were riding the bus with them and you know, starting to get to know people that lived in the area. And uh, it was later that we found out that there was never a time that anybody could remember driving past that farm in the middle of the night or the wee hours of the morning that every single light in that house wasn't on. And so after, you know, my parents had time to process it and think about it, and, you know, word started getting out. We were being teased in school about living in the old haunted house up on Round Top and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and kids on the bus were saying, yeah, Mr. the Kenyans always left all the lights on all night long, all the time, always. And, and there were no street lights. I mean, there were no lights out there at all. And so it was kind of lit up like a Christmas tree on a very dark, you know, black, drop uh backdrop of black landscape and um you know my mother figured that you know they knew that there was activity in the house and the way to either keep it at bay or to at least see what was coming was if the lights were all on in the house but mm -hmm. how they slept like that i'll you know i'll never know although i will tell you after living in the farmhouse I cannot sleep in the dark. 
I do not sleep in the dark and I always have to have, have some sound going in the background. You know, I sleep with the TV on, on all night long. It doesn't matter if it's just the weather channel turned way down. The only way that I can, my, my brain goes a thousand miles an hour all the time. And it's like it short circuits it. Mm -hmm. If I hear the same information over and over again, and then I can fall into a deep sleep. But I have to have lights on and I have to have sound in the background in I order to I have the same problem. My house isn't, I mean, it's not overly active, but there's stuff here. And over the years, uh, I was the only one in the house that saw stuff. And um, so I've always had the lights on, sleeping. Um, luckily, we have an old, there's an old furnace here. So as a kid, the furnace would come on. And I could mm -hmm. hear that noise to put me to sleep. But even now, every all the lights the lights are on at night. I've got the TV on all night, just like you do. I don't care if it's a stupid news program or whatever. There's got to be something on the background because I know um, at, at night, especially, there's noises. There's stuff going on all the time, and you can hear yeah. stuff falling. You can hear footsteps. You can hear this. Like last night, there's a light. Um, that's a safety light out in front of the house. That thing hasn't come on in years. And for some reason, maybe because I'm interviewing you and they're trying to like talk to me, I don't know. The thing came on twice, and there was really wow. no, no reason for it to come on, even though the switch was mm -hmm. up. It hasn't worked in like six years, but it came on twice wow. last night. So I don't know what that meant. So I turned the switch off, and at least it didn't come back on. But like you, I have to have a noise, and I have to have the TV, you know, have the lights. Yeah. Well, I will. You know, I probably should have forewarned you when we spoke on the phone. <laughs> Um, but um, you should anticipate there being at some point, and I hope not because I asked right. all the powers right. they, you know, to behave. But uh, very often technical glitches happen while I'm doing interviews, which is what's happening um, now because your 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 voice is getting choppy and stuff. So yeah, I'm oh, good. You know, I mean, it just it just happens. Yeah. Uh, they mess with technology. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, uh, very often, um, I get reports from um, my interviewers prior to going on the air that while they were doing research on our story or, you know, familiarizing themselves with um, my background, uh, bizarre things would happen in their homes <laughs> See, while there they were doing it. that. There you have it. And I am, I am a bit of a spirit magnet. You know, I will admit that. I mean, people take me on investigations as like a piece of their equipment. There you go. I can't touch any of the equipment. Right. None of it. Um, because I will immediately drain the batteries or they will just completely malfunction. Um, or if I come anywhere near them, they just, they go berserk. They do bizarre things. And uh, now that the house, um, the farmhouse is open for investigations, I know so many people in the field that uh, occasionally I'll get a phone call from one of my friends who's like, we're going to the farm for the whole weekend. It's going to be great. Can we call you while we're there? And, you know, and I always tell them yes, because what we have found over the last year or two since the new owners have had the place is that if the people who are investigating the farmhouse call me 
once they're set up and they've got all their gadgets and their gizmos and their widgets all over the place and everything is settled and the, you know all the equipment is in um if they call me and put me on speakerphone then i can introduce them to the spirits tell them you know to you know please be warm and welcoming please you know don't terrify anybody just they're they're they just want to communicate with you mm -hmm. and so if you would be kind enough to allow them to do that um that would be marvelous and i just you know i say hello to them i let them know when i'll be back um uh, you know and just chat with them for a few minutes and and it, it seems to uh in a remarkable way seems to activate the house and all of a sudden all these pieces of equipment that were just laying around, you know, doing nothing, all start coming to life. You know, they all start lighting up and making sounds and doing what each distinct piece of equipment is meant to do if there is spirit activity near it or, you know, touching it or whatever. And, um, and we've caught this on film over and over and over again while I'm talking mm -hmm. through the speakerphone, just, you know, greeting the group, the team, reading the spirits, you know, making a proper introduction to everybody that's there because it does freak them out a little bit um, because they're not used to having so many people come through the house right. and so many strangers that they've never encountered before. And, you know, so I, I always tell the teams, be very respectful. Don't ever for one moment forget that you're the intruder and it was their house first. You know, in the same way that was true of our family, mm -hmm. and so just be respectful and um, and and talk to them in a way that you would talk to each other. Uh, you know, it's uh, do one to others as though you are the others, because eventually all of us will return to the realm from which we come and inevitably return, which is spirit realm. And it's it's amazing what they capture on film while I'm talking and you can hear my voice in the back and K2 meters are like, you know, every color in the rainbow, they're going off and, and uh, you know, there's figures and shadow figures moving around and, you know, all kinds of, because the house had at least a dozen active spirits in it, at least that. That, that I know for sure because it was mm -hmm. at least a dozen that I witnessed over the 10 years that we lived there. Um, and it doesn't mean that there weren't more and it doesn't mean that some of them might not have crossed in the interim. Um, but, uh, the house is still incredibly active. And so I get to, from 1600 miles away, I get to, you know, play a, a small part in allowing these folks that are so fascinated and so curious to go in there and have a truly meaningful experience, you know, during their investigation. And I really enjoy doing that. Fascinating. Now you talk, you, you, you talk about the, the first uh, apparition you saw being this man, what followed after that? Because obviously, you know, you might have started as one because they were testing the water to see how you guys would react. So what started happening after that? Within the first night or two that we lived there, you know, there were three bedrooms upstairs. The bedroom right over the parlor was my own. 
Um, and my sisters, Christine and Cindy, shared the middle room and the room over the kitchen was Nancy and April. Um, and Cindy came crawling into bed with me and she said that she was scared because she was hearing voices. And, you know, it didn't occur to me that it was anything unusual because Christine has a marked tendency to talk in her sleep. So when Cindy came in, I thought, you know, Christine was just doing what Chris does and uh, that it had startled Cindy, but she said, no, it's not Chris, she's sound asleep. She said that she heard um, voices and they were all speaking together and they were all saying the same thing at the same time in unison. So I asked her what that was. And she said, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. And it would get louder and louder and louder to the point where even burying her head under her pillow, she could still hear them. And she would just throw the quilt off and come bolting into my room. And when I was writing the books, um, I asked her, uh, how many times she thought that that happened in the years that we lived there. And she just looked at me and she said, thousands, thousands. Wow. You know, I'm like, okay, well, okay. So in other words, every single night that we lived there. And she said, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I didn't know what to make of that because mm -hmm. Um, you know, the house is just clapboard. It has no right. insulation. Uh, it's a miserably cold house or miserably hot in the height of summer. It's only a few months a year that it's bearable to live in it. Um, and so, you know, I was thinking, well, what wall? You know, what wall could there be soldiers buried in? And, and you know, Charlotte, when you think about it, I mean... The house was there already there for the Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. the Civil War, the Door Rebellion, all the border skirmishes between the colonies. You know, there were a lot of things that happened, um, you know, during that time. Uh, you know, War of 1812. I mean, there were, um, you know, wars going on between the American Indians and the settlers, the colonists. I mean, you know, there was all kinds of activity. Uh, going on in terms of conflict like that. So it didn't seem any way implausible, but it certainly did seem implausible to me that they would actually be buried in the house. Right. Um, or hidden in the house. Um, but there was a retaining wall behind the house before the garden spot. And uh, the whole okay. yard is, uh, the, the, the proper yard is six acres and then all the acreage behind it, which was really more forest than anything. Um, and um, recently they've had somebody there with uh, ground seeking radar mm -hmm. that have discovered some things. Now they haven't dug anything up, but they've been inserting these tubes and like blasting out radar along the stone wall Mm -hmm. to see you know what they can see underground and they have found a spot where there seems to be um a burial 
of some kind. But wow. in the state of Rhode Island, you are not allowed to exhume anything uh, at all. It's, it's absolutely not allowed. So that's probably as far as they'll get, you know, it could be an Indian burial ground. Right. It could be the soldiers. It could be, but it's something. Something mm -hmm. is buried along the back end of the stone wall. Wow. Yeah. So you had that going on. You saw this man. And oh, honey, things, that's the tip of the iceberg. I'm just oh, saying, things, things start to ramp up. So, 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 so what happens next? I'm intrigued. I can sit here all day listening to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll rejoin you anytime you want, yes. and we can just pick up where we left off. I mean, we haven't even talked about extraterrestrials, you know, no, and that's my there, gig. Have we? Have we? This you is know, I mean, that's this, my thing. This hour just spread by. Oh. You believe wow. that? We've been, we've been on here an hour. Oh, that's amazing. Because really, amazing. it feels like it's been five minutes to me. Yeah, that's um, absolutely amazing. Well, so, it was, it. I mean, there was so much that happened so much that happened over the course of 10 years mm -hmm. uh, that I couldn't even write the books uh, in chronological order. I was guided by spirit to write the books a little differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have to ask my readers to be patient. And, right. you know, because volume one starts chronologically where you meet my family as uh, a normal family and then you see everything that happened and exactly the way that it had to happen mm -hmm. to catapult us to the farm. And, and then it was like everything conspired against us to keep us there for 10 years. Right. And my mother actually had to ask permission of the spirits to leave the farmhouse 10 years later. I mean, wow. really, it's a very long, drawn out, convoluted story. But I wanted my readers to, to have that that swirling sense of timelessness about the experience, the same that we did. You know, right. I once asked Cindy, you know, what was it about living there that blew your mind most of all, of, of right. everything? And she said, not knowing what was going to happen next. That was the thing that haunted her the most. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, it's written from the moment that we arrive as owners till mm -hmm. the moment that we leave in volume three, all the stories are kind of intermingled. Um, there's 10 chapters total over three books, but myriad subchapters. And so what I ask my reader to do mm -hmm. kindly is to suspend disbelief because you're going to read stories that are quite literally unbelievable. Like if I hadn't lived them myself, I right. don't know if I would believe them. That unbelievable. Um, I ask them to suspend all notion of linear time and know that what you're reading happened in that 10 years that we lived there. And when you get to the end, you'll see the whole thing like a Venn diagram, like a timeline. Um, but it's really written more like the kind of hauntings that happened because there were so many different manifestations of energy in the house. Um, so, for instance, one story could be about Cindy, something that happened to Cindy when she was eight. But the mm -hmm. very next story could be something that happened to Cindy at 14. And that doesn't mean that you just lost six years. Right. What I want you to do is pause and reflect and say, what is the correlation between these two events? 
And how many times did this happen to this child? Hmm. You know, that kind of thing. So it really shreds in and blows apart the whole notion of linear time. Because really, we didn't know from one moment to the next if it was 1976, if it was 1842, if it was 1737. I mean, we just didn't know because this was a place where you literally would flow from moment to moment through one dimension into the next dimension and then back. Wow. And so you could see anything at any time and had to stop and process that. Like, you know, what was that? Right. Where did that come from? You know, but it wasn't all doom and gloom. It's why the books are titled House of Darkness, House of Light, because mm -hmm. it was the most enlightening, most illuminating, most inspiring 10 years of my life. And I have no fear of death because I know that life goes on in some way, shape or form after death, that death is not an end all be all, it is transition. And that some, some spirits re remain and retain some element of their form and their character and remain for some reason or another. And, you know, I speculated about it, Charlotte, and I'm sure you have as well, but at least in the case of the farmhouse, I think that at least for some of them, they died either so quickly or so tragically that they left unfinished business. Yes. And some of them probably are not even really aware that they're dead based on their behavior in the house. So it fractures all notions, uh, uh, you know, in terms of physics um, and introduces, you know, fourth dimension, fifth dimension and beyond in a way that I don't think any other story has because of the, the length, the depth, the breadth, you know, of time that we were there that, you know, the experiences that we had and compiled, uh, it really is a remarkable story. And I'll join you again anytime you want to talk to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. In fact, you know what, let's just call this part one, because I'd like to get you on okay. for part two. How's that sound? Wonderful. I will call you after we get off the air. I have some open days in July if you're available. So we'll see what we can do. Okay. That sounds that great. Great. Thank you so much. And guys, again, this is part one. So we're just trying to wet your whistle a little bit about her story. And I want to talk to her about aliens, too. We're going to, we're going to talk about that stuff, too. So we've got a lot coming up, Melandra. Okay. Absolutely. And I thank you so much for coming on today. And I will call you as soon as I get done. Shut this thing down today, and we'll set up a day in July for part two. Thank you, Andrea. You're welcome. You have a good one. You too, honey. Okay, so you heard the lady, so we're going to do a part two on this because she there's so much to tell. And from what I've researched, let me push this forward a little bit. There we go. From what I've researched on the con, uh, Conjuring uh, online and through her books, there is so, so much that went on in that house. And I can tell you from experience what happened to me while I was on the air with her. That's why I had to drink water is I broke out in a sweat. Um like something was in here with me and uh, I got kind of dizzy. I could feel a little bit in my head that something was going on. So I had to drink the water. It suddenly, as quickly as it happened, it released. But I did have to get the water because I thought maybe I was dehydrated, but I know it's not that because I've been drinking a lot of water. 
So something definitely <laughs> came and affected me during the interview. So that tells you next time I'm going to have to be a little more grounded when I'm talking to her. But anyway, thanks for, thanks for watching this. And we will have part two with Andrea next month. Okay? So I will see everybody and have a wonderful whatever you're going to have. Bye-bye.